Hello, and welcome to the, oh, I forget which one this is, the next episode of the Unsouthern Podcast. This is the companion podcast to my blog at unsouthern.com, and I've been up and running for about a month or so, uh, well, not quite a month, four weeks, 12 blog posts, and I'm trying to catch up with the, with the podcast. Um, the idea is to record one podcast per blog post and to not only uh, read you guys the blog post itself, but also to provide some additional color since I can only go into so much detail before my fingers cramp or I run out of time the night before when I'm trying to finalize uh, my thoughts and feelings on any particular subject, which <clears throat> whatever, whatever subject is, is the subject du jour. So I'm recording here from my condo in downtown Atlanta, here with my production assistant, who, as per normal, is napping. His name is Mr. Amir. He may come by a little later. And the next blog post, which was actually published back on March 1st, was titled, Oh, Chivalry. And if you read the blog post and didn't get the... Um, didn't get the joke of the title. Hopefully the way I just pronounced it will um, will make that clear for you. Chivalry is something I almost don't even have to read this blog post. This is a, this is a, a rant that I have had memorized in my head for years. Uh, it's one of my biggest disconnects with all things Southern and all things connected to the earlier, quote-unquote, simpler times when... Men were men and women were women and everybody knew their place and you treated a lady with respect and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. So uh, I have a very distinct opinion about the concept of chivalry and um, <laughs> let me just roll up my sleeves and get started on this one before I, before I, I get way off track just in my introduction. So this is the, the blog post, which once, now that I'm reviewing it, was actually a fairly concise blog post considering how much vitriol I have toward the general concept of chivalry. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, you know how I feel. There's no, no spoilers in this one. So this was the blog post. Oh, chivalry. For the first several blog posts, and I'm, I'm, I'm breaking in again before I actually start reading, I used, uh, for the first several blog posts, I used Golden Girls quotes. I wasn't able to keep up that streak indefinitely, but I am, again, um, leading off with one particularly apt quote from that show for this particular post. What has become of chivalry when men used to open doors for you, pull out your chair, dip their hat, Kiss your hand, help you down out of your carriage, leave calling cards on little silver salvers. So how far do you want to go back, Blanche? I mean, do you still want to be able to vote? Blanche Devereaux and Dorothy Spornak, the Golden Girls. I gotta say, I'm with Dorothy on this one. If there's one topic where I'm unambiguously, unapologetically, unsouthern, it's the topic of chivalry. By way of definition, when discussing chivalry, I am referring to the specialized usage whereby men are honor-bound to treat women in certain very specific, even ritualized ways. 
I see chivalry as the companion of hospitality just with fixed gender roles. Now that we have the figurative housekeeping out of the way of, of defining our terms, let's talk about literal housekeeping. A woman's place in traditional Southern contexts was in the home, either keeping house on her own or supervising the staff that carries out the house, the housekeeping. A Southern lady, especially a lady of a certain status, also wore mobility limiting clothing that connoted elegance with a soupçon of helplessness. See corsets, petticoats, and dainty shoes. If you live in this type of social setup, it makes sense to have a code of chivalry. Women, much like the house pets we coddle today, were not fit to interact in the full reality of the world and had to be protected, followed, and escorted. I slipped followed in there. Uh, I may elaborate on that a little later, but I kind of like the flow of this blog post, so I'm going to minimally interrupt during the course of the, of the, of the reading. I will resume now. <clears throat> but that was then, and thank goodness this is now. There's no middle ground for me on this. Chivalry is part of a flawed, gendered social hierarchy that rewards people for ritualized manners and not genuine kind intent. I have no use for it. It works my last nerve whenever I see it in the 20 freaking first century. I give two examples below. Watch me seethe. Or listen to me seethe. <clears throat> Exhibit A. Elevator etiquette. <clears throat> my favorite part of working remotely during the pandemic is not dealing with the daily office ritual of men allowing women standing behind them in the lobby onto the elevator first. It's inefficient, it's vapid, and it's useless. There's no best place to stand in an elevator. And even if you find such a mythical place, you often have to adjust your position as the elevator fills. In other words, why would, what's the benefit of letting anybody on the elevator first? It's a free-for-all once you get in there anyway. And you don't get to your floor any quicker because you were escorted onto the elevator. What is the damn point? That was Exhibit A. Exhibit B. Those self-righteous practitioners of, of chivalry. My, my favorite story on this point occurred at the Lindbergh Marta station here in Atlanta, and I am going to break for a second to say that many, many times my example stories will take place on Marta. I do not have a regular social life, so a lot of my daily interaction with other people <laughs> has, is and has been for the past two or three decades a result of people watching or people observing um, or just being a helpless victim of whatever events are unfolding on the public transit system. So I'm gonna, you're going to hear the words MARTA, which is the, uh, the uh, Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, although there are certain unofficial uh, accountings of that acronym, which are vastly different and very satirical. Um, so, yeah, I will be mentioning MARTA a lot, just, just a heads up there. So getting back to the blog, my favorite story... On this point occurred at the Lindbergh Marta station here in Atlanta where a group of about two dozen of us were waiting to board a bus that had just pulled into the bus bay. Uh, an older man there, who I admit may have been suffering from a mental impairment, began directing pedestrian traffic. 
he was hurting all of the women out of everybody crowded around the bus. He was hurting all of the women to the front of the line and onto the bus in, in front of all the men, proclaiming ladies first and holding out his hand to bar entrance to the men closest to the front. Yes, he was literally standing there like a, like a smart, a, a smart turnstile or smart, uh, uh, like the doorman with the velvet rope. And anytime a woman came, came on, he, he left them on the bus. And anytime a man who was waiting right there tried to get on, he would, he would literally hold his arm out as a barrier. I don't make scenes in public as a general rule, but I imploded so thoroughly in the bus situation that a scene may have been pre- may have been the preferable option that day. The amount of anger I felt toward that man was unreasonable, but his actions struck at the core of my sense of fairness and rationality. Should we not treasure women? We should. More importantly, we should treasure all women. Chivalry was designed for a certain class of, of women. The archety- archetypal act of chivalry is the laying down of one's coat so that a lady can glide over a puddle. Such an act, though, requires that the man involved owns a coat in the first place. And if he does own a coat, he should also have one that he can afford to be ruined to prevent this minor inconvenience for this particular woman. Chivalry requires the luxury of sequestering the women in one's life into turrets and onto pedestals. It's not for washerwomen and servants. It's not for the marginalized or the poor who have to earn a wage to survive. And if a true gentleman actually recognizes these lowly, dingy females as worthy of the, the gesture of, the, of, of the, the gesture of chivalry, then that gesture itself becomes inadequate beside the uplift that is needed for this, for this woman. Why single out a woman for a gesture that makes her feel special once when, while doing nothing to fix the system that makes her not feel special always? Chivalry does work for me in the more generic sense of being kind and considerate to people of all genders. Note I said all genders. I'm, uh, I'm evolving like, like many other people on the, on the, on the topic and the language of, uh, of gender. And if there's an adequate opportunity, I may go into that a little further uh, after I finish reading the blog post. <clears throat> Holding open a door for another person is a polite gesture. It's, it saves the person some effort. Gesturing someone into a space first when there's no clear order about who should be going first means that you aren't so hurried that you can't pause and allow someone else passage, which, which is, you know, which is polite. Shield, shielding someone you care for from traffic by walking on the, uh, on the outside of a sidewalk or nearest to the road to them, uh, or shielding them from the rain by giving them part of your, the shelter of your umbrella or even handing them your umbrella, um, that's kindness in action. But gendering such consideration is, to me, an arbitrary relic of a time when all kinds of things were gendered. Things most of us wouldn't endorse gendering today, uh, to Dorothy Zbornak's point in the quote above, things like voting. If you'll pardon the pun, I think the time is nigh to say good night to chivalry 
and just start being kind to people. And um, good night was spelled with a K-N-I-G-H-T. So that was my fault for putting such an awful pun in my blog post and for also making a pun which was not transferable to a podcast without having to indicate how I spelled it. So that was a, a double miss for me. But yes, I, I had to say it. Good night. And then I sipped my tea. No, it's actually it's actually Coke Zero, but I, I but I do feel like I need some some tea. I need to make some to sip after that one because I, part of what I've been trying to do with Unsouthern to sort of change directions is to not make everything this Julia Sugarbaker style statement. Oh, and yes, there there are posts coming about Julia Sugarbaker. You can't talk about the the concept of Southern identity without, uh, especially in pop culture, without referencing her. I need to jot that down as a note. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I, you know, I, I really didn't want to go off on too many tangents. I really just sort of wanted to explore topics. Um, and, and, you know, not be quite so politically and socially motivated to make these sort of statements. I want to get to those same places and make those same points, but uh, I thought the more indirect route might be might be a might, might be good to a good route to take. Uh, in my ten previous years in my prior blog at mmon.com, I was uh, very much about sort of shrill political, uh, highly partisan political statements. And I'm not going to shy away from that necessarily, but I did think that for a more sort of continuous, sustainable, and generally maybe, you know, a more, dare I say it, literary blog format, I thought that it would be better to dial that back just to, just a touch and sort of be more reflective and be more, um, and, and leave more silences and leave more open issues and open questions and not necessarily having to come down on one side or the other or make everything a vent because that's that to me that's the real substantive difference between the unsouthern blog and my prior uh, in, incarnations in uh, in blogland with unsouthern I'm I am I'm writing on a schedule and I'm writing all the time so that allows me the time in the space to talk about things other than the things that really tick me off because that was very often the 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 jump off point for any any post I would make before because I, I wasn't on a schedule I would go months without posting anything and then something would really work my nerves or make me really really amped up and then I would go and I would write as a sort of therapy a sort of catharsis and sort of get the get the argument out there and you know to to be completely transparent about it that's also a way for me to prove to myself that I'm right if I can write up a really convincing post about something and I read over it and I'm like yeah that all makes sense then I then I'm I'm sure that I'm not just being unreasonable and then that's really um you know that's and that I'm I'm not just I'm I'm not just making things up or I'm not just I'm not just I'm not being unreasonable or closed-minded about something because while I'm writing I do tor- sort of think about 
the different perspectives or what someone might have to say in a, you know, to contradict or to argue against whatever point I'm making. And I, I try to, I've always tried to anticipate those. So unsouthern to me is a place where I'm not quite so preoccupied with proving that I'm right or with answering people's objections about things. Uh, my goal is to be more open-minded or, you know, at the very least to to allow more room for the reader to fill in the blanks about what the conclusion is to be drawn from from the, the, the available information. So at any rate, um, chivalry though is one of my hot button topics. So I'm going to rant from a completely uh, partisan position. In this case, highly partisan, highly biased against the whole idea of chivalry. Um, I'm not much of a traditionalist, and it's 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 difficult for me to calm down long enough to to think about tradition in a, in a really calm and measured way, and to, and to really put myself in the mindset of someone who honors tradition, whatever their, whatever your tradition is in your area of the country or your part of the world or your religion or your background, <clears throat> and since the only real group that I have any sort of minor allegiance to would be this, I say that I'm liberal. Um, part of that involves respecting a lot of, a lot of traditions, ironically. Liberal in and of itself means we need to change things, but part of being liberal is changing things so that people aren't changing so many things. Because the status quo for the U.S. has been to assimilate different groups of people and, and standardize this, this sort of ideal about how things should be, whether that be the, 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 the male-female relationship and dynamic, making sure that women remain subservient to men, uh, which is which was a big which has been a big societal push for a big part of the past three hundred years, or whether it's to maintain some sort of racial hierarchy or some or, or class hierarchy, um, and in, in large part part of you know the status quo has been to say we're going to assimilate everyone into our belief system, which necessarily means you're changing. If everybody already agreed with you, there would be no reason to make all these changes, right? So, you know, conservatism, traditionalism, ironically, has a, a good bit of change involved or embedded in it when it comes to assimilating ideas that are divergent from what someone defines as conservative. Um, and at the same time, being liberal means, means uh, going against that grain and saying, hey, we shouldn't keep doing, we shouldn't keep perpetuating the status quo of running roughshod over people's backgrounds and heritage and making them uh, speak English all the time or making them have American values or Eurocentric values or, or, or heteronormative values or however you want, whatever angle you want to take to, the, to what um, the status quo is. The other thing I wanted to explore regarding chivalry was, you know, 
how I grew up and the gender roles in my household. And, you know, the way a person is brought up definitely has a lot of, a lot of impact on, on their, on their opinions and on their viewpoints on things. And I, and I, I did not even touch that in this, in this blog post because this, this, this one was a sort of a, a freight train of, of, uh, of fury against this idea of chivalry. Um, but if I stop and reflect, I will say that the relationship that my parents had probably has a lot to do with why I feel this way. And the reason I say that is because I sort of feel like my mother was uh, constricted by her, her perceived role in the household. My mother was not a housekeeper, and she was not a cook. I mean, she did those things, but you, but it was very obvious she did those things out of a sense of obligation or a sense of this is what I'm supposed to do. It was very, for her, there was, you know, some, some people are born, born housekeepers, I guess you could say, like, that sounds really bad, but some people are, 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 are suited for doing housework. Some people are suited for being cooks, just like some people are suited for being nurturers. My mom was a great nurturer, at least when it came to me, but she wasn't, she didn't really nurture the household. I mean, our house was clean. Um, our finances were, I mean, our bills were paid and she sort of took, took charge of that. And our meals were cooked. She didn't slack off and not do these things, but it was very plain that it wasn't something that she relished doing or that she she correlated with the love that she felt for her family. It was very perfunctory for her. All of it was. <clears throat> so, like, for, you know, cooking is going to be this whole other other subject for me that I'm excited to, to look into um, and, and sort of self-explore. But my, my mother made the most uninspired, perfunctory meals that you could imagine. I mean, her meals were were for the most part tasty there were a couple dishes she made that i wasn't i wasn't fond of uh, but mostly just because of my personal taste not because she was doing them wrong but it but for her it was really all it, it you know it was all just a, a, a thing that she had to do she did what she knew felt like she had to do in the kitchen and same thing for housekeeping uh, i mean decorating was like <laughs> was almost like a it wasn't really a thing with her. I don't remember us um and maybe I'm overstating this a bit. I'm sure she she you know she bought some nice things to to help freshen up the house every now and again, but it just wasn't her thing. And my father basically took those things for granted in the in, in his house and when and when my mom passed before my, my father was able to get himself into another situation where there was sort of someone there to help take care of that uh, of those those perfunctory household duties he he really degenerated quickly into just sort of uh, household chaos like there he you know his idea of of putting together a meal or grocery shopping his idea of housekeeping his idea of just about anything related to anything domestic was um pretty far off the mark for what most of us would consider livable conditions 
And so he, you know, and I think my father excused, excused that discrepancy between, between himself and, and the, and his idea of what women should do. I don't think he necessarily was going to, he, I never heard him say anything about, oh, a woman's place is this, that, or the other. But when it came right down to it, he just wasn't going to do it himself. And he basically put it down to, chalked it up to priorities. But the, in other words, it wasn't a priority for him. So why should he do it? If you want to do it, you know, me and my mom, then, you know, be my guest. But it's not something I'm really interested in. But, I mean, but it came, became pretty clear. And he only lasted a few months living completely on his own. It became clear that there were just certain things that even he had to admit needed some basic maintenance around the house. So I never really, I don't know, I never really saw my father go out of his way to do anything related to gender roles except to take advantage of them. Even if he did in sort of a passive-aggressive way, like, oh, I'm not really interested in this, so you do it. So, I mean, so I think to me, I didn't see the benefit of it. I didn't see any women in my life being happy or pleased about being treated that way. And I didn't see any of the men in my life being, uh, which basically means my father, really doing anything which impressed me and made me think, oh, he's such a gentleman. To me, it all just, you know, to me, I kind of felt like I saw right through it all the, the, the entire time in my own house and around me. I just felt like I, I, at no point did I ever harbor this illusion that men were, 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 were in real life gracious and gentlemanly in the way that the, the, the chivalric ideal would, would, would have them behave. So, you know, that's, that's worth a lot more exploration um, for me personally. Uh, I'm probably rattled on about it for about five minutes too long just then. The last thing I want to talk about before I wrap up is the idea of gender in the first place. I think one of the great developments of the, especially the past five years, has been this idea of, of opening up the idea of gender identity. So many people now are, uh, you know, listing their pronouns, which is something that wasn't even like I don't even know if this was a thing like outside of possibly academic settings, like more than five years ago, people are listing their pronouns. You know, do you want to be referred to as? he, him, um, her, their, you know, what, what do you want to be, how do you want to be referred to as when, when your name is not being directly invoked? People are exploring different non-binary, in other words, not male or female, gender identities. There's, you know, it almost sounds like a, a, like a Starbucks ordering, uh, convention the way some people mix and match terms which which describe who they are in terms of their gender gender identification and or their uh, to some degree their their sexual preference um, but you know which you know they're not the same thing but there's certain points of convergence in other words you know you can't really talk about your sexual preference outside of your outside of gender because the object of your sexual pre- preference has to be identified and is usually identified in some way that's related to gender. So it's a, it's a really complex dynamic and after so many generations of people insisting on hammering into our heads that there are men and there are women and men marry women and that's the end of the story. It's, you know, it's very, it's probably very disorienting in this generation to 
hear about the idea that there are different genders and that behind the scenes, parents and hospitals and churches and whomever else has been involved have, have, have been, you know, and we pulled back the curtain on it. But behind those curtains, there, there's operations that are happening. There's gender determinations that are happening. There's, there, there's, you know, I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm going to just throw a percentage out there, 1% of people who are born that have some degree of divergence from a strict male, female, biological uh, chromosome configuration. It, it's just, it really is just part of the world we live in. But since we, since we, you know, we throughout history, we've always sort of swept divergence under the rug in, you know, I guess from a Darwinian standpoint, that just, that, that sort of, that, that, you know, that's a, a bit of a, you know, maybe I'm, I'm extrapolating a bit too much here, but I, I, th- I, I, you know, I think of it as a Darwinian strategy to sort of simplify our interactions, to streamline our, our civilizations. You can't get into the details of, oh, well, how do we treat people who are amputees versus how do we treat people who are elderly versus people who are non-binary. Anyone who drags down the curve for productivity or for efficiency uh, or for reproduction in our society, there's no real use for them, so they they can just die. I mean, and that's from a from a Darwinian from a from a historical standpoint. That's that's how that works, and it, you know, and, and of course now we have way more people in the world than we need, and we have support systems and networks, and the luxury that that affords us is the ability to really embrace people who have all kinds of divergent uh, physical traits genders, orientations, and backgrounds and beliefs. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So, and you know, at the end of the day, chivalry may, is, is, is based on that binary gender system in the first place. So that's, if, any, if there's any one thing that could strike an ax at the root of this idea of chivalry, I think that would be it. So I'll leave you with that thought. And um, yes, I like the idea of ending on chopping down the entire idea of chivalry and Yelling timber. <laughs> Until next time on the Unsouthern Podcast.